January 1957, Santiago de Cuba. 14-year-old William Soler's heart was pounding. As he ran past an abandoned construction site, he could hear his friends screaming and soldiers yelling. William knew what happened to people who stood up to President Fulgencio Batista. He'd seen the bodies swinging in trees. He'd heard about the people who left for work and never came home. Any moment, that could be him. William and his friends had been accused of helping Fidel Castro's 26th of July movement. And even though there was no evidence against them, the military could still arrest them. All they needed was the rumor. All of a sudden, a soldier grabbed William and shoved him into a room. Another soldier kicked him in the stomach, shouting, Tell us what you know about the 26th of July movement. We know you helped with their attacks. But William just gritted his teeth. He wasn't going to tell them anything. William's body was discovered in an empty lot the next day. Another victim of Fulgencio Batista's brutal authoritarian regime. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're exploring the reigns of 20th century caudillos Fulgencio Batista of Cuba, Juan Perón of Argentina, and Francisco Franco of Spain. Today, we'll continue our look at Fulgencio Batista of Cuba. Last week, we explored Batista's quest for power as he rose from ambitious but impoverished soldier to reform-minded politician, and how after a brief term as president, he retired to the beaches of Florida. This week, we'll discover how Batista returned to Cuba and seized power once more, becoming as corrupt and violent as the men before him. And we'll explore how a young dissident lawyer was able to inspire thousands to bring Batista's regime to an end. We'll have all that and more coming up. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. For nearly a decade, Fulgencio Batista was the most powerful man in Cuba. After leading a coup in 1933, he spent years enacting social reforms, as well as enriching himself through deals with American tycoons. But by 1944, Batista's popularity had declined. Many saw him as becoming too corrupt, so he decided to leave power peacefully before he became a victim of a coup like previous presidents. But Batista couldn't quit Cuba forever. After four years, he returned home, determined to prove to himself that he hadn't lost his people's love. 
He decided to run for president again in 1952, but the Cuba he'd returned to wasn't exactly the Cuba he'd left behind. As election day drew near, Batista was horrified when he saw the polls. He, the beloved leader who had brought democracy to Cuba, was trailing in a distant third place. Batista couldn't understand why. He was even polling behind the Autentico party, whose outgoing president, Carlos Prio Socarras, had allowed corruption and graft to continue. Did the people forget that Batista was the one who brought democracy to Cuba back in 1933? Or that it was his social welfare programs that the people benefited from? Batista refused to be humiliated with a loss on election day, so he decided to take matters into his own hands. Batista got in touch with his friends and supporters in the military. Many of them were also fed up with the corruption of the current government. They missed the days when the military had been the real source of power. If Batista wanted to do something about it, they would get in line behind him. All he had to do was give the order. So in the early hours of March 10, 1952, months before the election was due to happen, Batista mobilized the military under a handful of loyal officers. One of Batista's lieutenants took a few men to the presidential palace and demanded President Prio's surrender. Instead, the guards fired on them, killing the lieutenant. Prio immediately realized a military coup was underway. But before he could act, Batista's men surrounded the palace with squads of troops with machine guns and armored cars. Prio knew his time was up, so instead of standing his ground, he and a handful of his closest associates escaped to the Mexican embassy. When Batista arrived at the presidential palace, it was empty. With minimal bloodshed, Fulgencio Batista was once again in charge of Cuba. By morning, the news of the coup was out, and Batista moved quickly to reassure the people that everything was okay. He falsely claimed he acted in order to stop a forthcoming coup by Prio. Batista felt it was his job to intervene. He promised all of this was temporary, and that elections would come once the corruption was gone. Of course, the only way to get the job done was total control. And that meant squashing anyone who opposed his authority. Until there could be elections, Batista created a provisional government and suspended constitutional rights. Then, to prevent conflict with the labor movement, Batista made a deal with the head of the country's largest trade union, Eusebio Mujal. He got to keep his job if he made sure there was no general strike. Next came the Americans. They didn't love that Batista had staged a military coup, but since Batista had always been friendly to American business, it only took the U.S. a few weeks to recognize Batista's government. Batista strengthened relations by making it clear he would be an anti-communist force in Latin America. He knew this was the U.S.'s biggest interest in the Cold War era, and it was a goal Batista shared the primary resistance he faced came from leftist groups of students and young professionals like the FEU, which were based at the University of Havana. These student groups had been stockpiling weapons as a precaution in case opposition parties folded. 
When Batista took over, one of these groups, called the National Revolutionary Movement, decided it was their job to fight back. Of course, the students stood little chance against the well-trained and well-armed military. When they attacked government forces in the streets of Havana in early April, the army and police easily arrested them. But even though the students were no real threat, Batista painted them as dangerous radicals to both the Americans and the general public as a way to justify continued martial law. As for the rest of the Cuban people, most of them just shrugged at Batista's coup. A flailing economy, rising poverty, and government corruption had beaten the people down. Batista actually felt like a return to normalcy. Batista's social welfare programs in the 1930s and 40s had been popular, and he had largely stuck to his word in the past when it came to holding elections. Perhaps this really was just a temporary house cleaning. Batista leaned into this, promising to root out the gangsterism of Prio's government and put the focus back on the people. He wouldn't allow corrupt businessmen to steal from and mistreat workers. But Batista had no intention of actually following through on these promises. His interests were now purely his own. Instead of helping the workers, Batista's focus was on making deals with American tycoons, with kickbacks for himself, of course. He let U.S. companies like United Fruit buy up more land and gave them even better trade deals, without enforcing any of the worker protections that had once made him popular. And he didn't only work with legitimate U.S. businessmen. In early 1953, Batista got in touch with notorious American gangster Meyer Lansky. The two had become good friends during Batista's years in Florida, and now he had a job for the mobster. He wanted him to help turn Cuba's tourism industry around. Lansky had been operating casinos and nightclubs for years. He developed a reputation in the U.S. for his honest, well-run casinos, and with Batista's backing, he'd be able to do the same for the nightlife in Cuba. Lansky immediately got to work. He and his fellow mobsters poured money into Cuba's hospitality industry, renovating old hotels, building new ones, and constructing casinos. He booked the biggest American performers, from Frank Sinatra to Ginger Rogers, and brought in celebrity chefs. Soon, the rich and famous from Europe and North America were descending upon the island, rubbing shoulders with Cuba's own elite. Batista, Lansky, and all of their associates were raking in cash. And as long as he kept the American tycoons happy, Batista could do whatever he wanted. But he had underestimated his own people. After more than a decade of democracy, they recognized his cronyism and corruption for what it was. He had promised to restore constitutional rights and call an election within a matter of months. But after a year, it still hadn't happened. Every time Batista postponed an election, he angered more and more people. But he didn't care. He thought he could take down anyone who tried to stop him. What he didn't realize was that a new and stronger opposition movement was brewing, led by a young lawyer who'd given up on trying to work within the system, Fidel Castro. Coming up, Batista faces an opponent he can't buy off. 
Listeners, searching for something a little spooky to dig into? Then check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this eerie new series. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why do black cats represent witchcraft? What evil gets triggered when you walk under an open ladder? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem mystical or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the podcast series Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1952, Fulgencio Batista led a military coup that put him back in power in Cuba. Batista promised he'd hold new elections soon, but by the summer of 1953, nothing had happened. He claimed that he couldn't call an election until he had successfully stabilized the country. But instead of working towards democracy, 52-year-old Batista was living the high life. He threw extravagant parties at his mansion and brushed shoulders with American celebrities at mobster-run casinos. He peacocked for gossip magazines, held private movie screenings, and waved to adoring fans. Meanwhile, the opposition simmered. At the end of July 1953, they decided to strike. On the morning of July 26th, the city of Santiago de Cuba was sleeping off the hangover of the previous night's carnival celebration. While they slept, more than 150 armed revolutionaries attacked the Moncada army barracks. Led by a 26-year-old dissident lawyer, Fidel Castro, his younger brother, Raul, and a handful of their friends, the attack was intended to show that the Batista regime wasn't as omnipotent as it seemed. Castro hoped that once they had control of an army barracks, they'd be able to unify all the smaller opposition groups and fight back with real firepower. With their encouragement, the people would rise up for a return to democracy. But the attack didn't go as planned. The revolutionaries weren't prepared to face off against trained soldiers. The rebellion quickly turned into a massacre. Within a matter of hours, dozens of the rebels had surrendered. Unfortunately, the soldiers didn't stop there. At Batista's orders, the military brutally tortured most of the insurgents before murdering them. In total, around 68 rebels were killed. And in the days that followed, more suspected collaborators were arrested and never seen again. But instead of suppressing dissent, the government's response backfired. People were horrified by the brutality and took to the streets in protest. By the time Castro was arrested several days later, the Moncada attack had become a flashpoint for the frustration with Batista's regime. To try and ease tensions, Batista decided to keep Castro alive and give him a proper trial. The government would be seen as fair and reasonable, 
and other dissidents would see that rebellions only resulted in death and prison. However, when Castro's trial rolled around in October 1953, Batista started to suspect that he might have been a bit too confident. During his trial, Castro gave a fiery four-hour speech condemning the brutal Batista regime. He branded Batista a tyrant and declared that the Cuban people needed to follow in the footsteps of other democratic revolutions and overthrow him. When the court sentenced Castro to 15 years in prison, he said it didn't matter. History would absolve him. Overnight, the previously unknown Castro became a folk hero. Even from behind bars, he was inspiring the Cuban people. Here was someone who had attacked the military, Batista's stronghold, and come away unbroken. Batista realized that he had to prove Castro's attacks were wrong. So a few weeks after Castro's trial, he announced that the elections would be held a year later, on November 1, 1954. After the election, Cuba's suspended constitution would be restored. Even better, though, he announced that political parties would no longer need a minimum number of registered supporters in order to run candidates. He wanted everyone to be able to participate in Cuban democracy. In reality, the new rule was a clever PR move that handicapped Batista's competition. By allowing every possible political party to run candidates, it would be almost impossible for any of them to gain a larger share of the vote than Batista's party. But most Cubans didn't realize this. They saw it as Batista finally following through on his promise. Perhaps he had just needed a nudge from Castro to return to the civic-minded Cuban patriot they remembered. However, opposition groups were still wary. And in a move to placate the U.S., Batista made the Communist Party illegal, despite still having working relationships with many of the party's leaders. Meanwhile, Cuba's two leading opposition parties were split on whether they should participate in the elections at all. Some felt participating would legitimize Batista's regime. Even if he called it a fair and democratic election, it was obvious that Batista was doing everything he could do to remain in power. So the opposition parties decided to boycott the election in protest. Over the coming months, all the candidates dropped out one by one. On November 1st, 1954, Fulgencio Batista was once again elected president of Cuba, though it was a hollow victory. He was the only candidate still in the race. Still, Batista leaned into the trappings of his election, as much to convince himself of its legitimacy as to convince the rest of the country. He held a grand inauguration in February 1955, and that same month enjoyed a visit from U.S. Vice President Richard Nixon. Nixon's presence and congratulatory toasts reminded everyone that Batista had U.S. support behind him. Anyone who might have been inspired by Fidel Castro's Moncada attack knew they wouldn't stand a chance against the U.S. military. So, for the most part, no one challenged the outcome of the election. But before he settled into another term of corruption, Batista decided to make one more bid for the hearts of the Cuban people. In May 1955, he announced a general amnesty for dissidents, exiles, and political prisoners. 
Fidel Castro, his followers, and everyone else Batista's regime had locked up were released. Batista wanted to prove that in the wake of the election, Cuba had the political liberties of a democracy. The country was starting a new chapter, and Fulgencio Batista was writing it. But Batista was no longer the populist leader who traveled around the country trying to bring about social reforms. He was an aging dictator who was losing touch with the people. Everyone saw the way he let American companies exploit Cuban workers and land, and how the mob-run casinos took advantage of tourism. When Batista let the 26th of July rebels go free, he had no idea just how popular Fidel Castro's message might become. Coming up, Batista loses his grip on Cuba. Now, back to the story. When Fulgencio Batista released all political prisoners in May 1955, he was trying to prove that his regime was supportive of democracy. But he only felt comfortable releasing them because he knew the opposition couldn't hurt him. He held the country in an iron grip. Batista had given the Military Intelligence Service, or El Sim, free reign to deal with violent dissidents as they saw fit. Any opposition group that was organized would quickly find itself targeted. The futility of the situation was obvious to Fidel Castro. After he was released from prison, he feared that he'd be assassinated in a matter of months. So he went into self-imposed exile in Mexico. Meanwhile, most other opposition leaders still wanted to trust Batista's move toward democracy. Later that year, the opposition parties urged Batista to hold new elections the following year in 1956. This time, they would all participate. But Batista had no intention of meeting their demands. Sure, he wanted people to feel like they had a voice, but they weren't actually allowed to have any power. The other political parties didn't realize they were purely cosmetic. It seemed the only people left in Cuba who weren't buying into Batista's false democracy were the leftist student groups. And the longer Batista stayed in power, the more radical they became. In early 1956, the street violence between the student radicals and the military spiraled into an all-out war. But more damaging than the student agitators was a conspiracy within Batista's own bastion of support, the military. Working-class soldiers' families were being hurt by Batista's policies. Working conditions were still dangerous and exploitative, and the only people in Cuba making good money were the elites and the American tycoons. So a faction of the military plotted to overthrow the government. Losing the support of soldiers was indicative of a far bigger problem. Batista's popularity across the country was tanking. But instead of listening to his soldiers' complaints, Batista responded as he always did, with force. Approximately 200 members of the military were arrested for the conspiracy. Once again, Cuba was spinning out of control. Students were dying in the streets and disappearing into prisons, never to be seen again. The opposition leaders exhorted Batista to bring an end to the turmoil. But Batista refused to engage with them. 
to capitulate would show weakness. The more Cuba slipped through his grasp, the tighter he tried to hold on. But the failure to reach any sort of compromise only radicalized more Cubans. Those who had previously found Fidel Castro's armed rebellion too extreme started to think that perhaps he had been right. With each passing day, insurrection sounded more and more appealing. On December 2, 1956, Fidel Castro sailed into eastern Cuba with 81 men. His plan was to rally an army to take on Batista. Instead, he and his men stumbled into a military battalion and were almost wiped out. But word of the incident spread quickly, and people across the country were inspired. The 26th of July movement's ranks swelled. The year was bloody. The movement carried out more attacks on Batista's military and on American nightclubs. The goal was to shake loose American support of Batista's regime. The military responded with brutality. Known opponents of the government disappeared from their homes. El Sim hung suspected collaborators from trees in warning and tortured others for information. Soon, anyone who'd ever spoken out was being targeted. The breaking point came in early 1957 when the bodies of 14-year-old William Soler and three others were found in an empty lot in Santiago de Cuba. It was clear that the boys had been tortured to death by El Sim. Even ordinary Cubans who had tried to stay neutral were horrified by the murders of children. The nation erupted in protest. Batista responded to the civil disobedience by cracking down even harder on dissent. All across the country, the bodies of executed people lined the roads, a reminder of what happened when you spoke out against Batista. And yet, the people didn't give up. Much of their hope stemmed from Fidel Castro. With each passing day, more and more Cubans were inspired to join his guerrilla army. And in February 1957, the New York Times published an interview with Fidel Castro. Somehow, Castro was able to smuggle an American reporter up to his hideout in the Sierra Maestra Mountains to write a glowing profile of him. Overnight, the freedom fighter became a celebrity. But for Fulgencio Batista, Castro was nothing more than a sideshow. The 26th of July movement was still no match for the Cuban military. In Batista's mind, it was only a matter of time before Castro was killed. What he didn't realize was that his power was beginning to wane. On March 13, 1957, several dozen members of the Revolutionary Directorate broke into the presidential palace intending to assassinate Batista. Batista managed to escape just in time. Most of the assassins were killed by government forces during the attack or shortly thereafter. And with Batista's blessing, El Sim used the attempt as an excuse to arrest and disappear a number of other known dissidents, even if they didn't have a hand in the plot. Batista hoped that the failure of the assassination attempt would put an end to the sudden upswing in protests. Unfortunately, Batista's violence angered the one ally he desperately needed, the United States. Between the New York Times profile on Castro and the post-assassination attempt violence, 
the U.S. realized that Batista was becoming a problem. Their alliance projected the image of the U.S. supporting an authoritarian. So, in an attempt to distance themselves from Batista, the U.S. placed an arms embargo against Cuba. Without the U.S. military behind him, Batista's chances of holding on to power weakened. Castro's ragtag group of guerrilla fighters, roughly 300 strong at this point, might have had a real shot at toppling him. In late May of 1958, Batista turned the full force of the Cuban army against the rebels, hoping to quash them quickly. But by then, it was too late. Castro's guerrillas had already gained widespread support, and their numbers were growing steadily. They were taking over the country acre by acre. And with each passing day, the soldiers' will to keep fighting against the rebels deflated. By November 1958, it was clear that Batista's regime was collapsing. New elections were scheduled, and Batista hoped to retain power through his chosen successor. But Fidel Castro ordered his supporters not to participate in the sham election. The people listened, and a good portion of the country stayed home from the polls. Recognizing that the political winds were changing, the U.S. ambassador informed Batista that the Americans would not be recognizing his hand-picked successor's government. When Batista asked if he could still go back to his house in Daytona Beach, the ambassador told him that he would not be welcome in the United States. On New Year's Eve, Batista finally had to acknowledge his time was over. The 26th of July movement, led by Argentine revolutionary Che Guevara, had taken the city of Santa Clara, 175 miles from Havana. Without U.S. support and with the rank and file of the military abandoning him, Batista knew he had no chance of maintaining control once they reached the capital. That night, Batista gathered his closest friends and associates together for a New Year's Eve party. He informed them that he was resigning and would be leaving the country on one of his jets outside his villa. There were seats for some of them if they wanted to escape with him. Around 2.40 a.m. on January 1st, 1959, while Cuba was ringing in the new year, Fulgencio Batista fled Cuba for the final time. His brutal reign was over. When the people found out, they took to the streets in celebration. By the time Batista fell, his regime had become known as one of the most corrupt and repressive in Cuba's short history. Though it's impossible to know exactly how many people his enforcers murdered, most agree that it's around 20,000. When Fidel Castro took over, he inherited a scarred and traumatized country. All the people wanted was freedom, and to have their lives back. Castro was the hero who had inspired them to stand up and fight back, and they hoped he would be the one to lead them back to stability. But by early 1960, it became clear that Castro had other plans. He rejected the American imperialism that Batista had courted, and instead aligned Cuba with the Soviet Union, and cracked down on anyone who disagreed with communism. Recognizing that the tide was turning and another dictator was on the rise, tens of thousands of Cubans fled to the United States. Though Fulgencio Batista wasn't welcome in the U.S., 
He found asylum in Spain and Portugal under the auspices of fellow dictators Francisco Franco and Antonio Salazar. There he spent his days writing books and articles in an attempt to explain himself and clear his name. Despite those efforts, he was still hated by many. When he died unexpectedly of a heart attack in 1973, at the age of 72, there were rumors that he'd beaten some would-be assassins to the punch by just a few days. Batista had spent his whole life working towards power and significance. He might have been pleased that his death generated such news and attention. But his burial in Madrid's oldest cemetery, alongside Spanish nobility, is what best exemplifies the twists and turns of Batista's life. No one could have foreseen such an end for the ambitious boy from the cane plantations, or for the dictator who once held Cuba's fortunes in the palm of his hand. While he had started out with a focus on social welfare and reform, Batista's own greed ultimately destroyed him, and it paved the way for another, different kind of dictator. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll go to Argentina to explore the rise and fall of Juan Perón. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Bad omens? Good fortune? Pure luck? Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>